All right, Romans chapter 9, starting in verse 14, I will read through verse 29. So Paul writes, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So that it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this? Will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the, over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although, uh, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have, be, and would have resembled Gomorrah. I'll stop there. So just a brief recap from last week. As we began a study uh, through this excursus, I called it an excursus or a parenthesis in Paul's argument that we find here in Romans 9 through 11. Now, when I say excursus, when I say that it's a parenthesis in his thought, I don't want to give off the wrong impression. Um, because when, while Paul's train of thought could quite easily flow from the end of Romans 8, verse 39, right into 12, verse 1. Um, that is not to say that what we have here in Romans 9 through 11 is irrelevant or is kind of, we can just toss it aside or that it's superfluous. Again, as we noted last week in our synopsis through Romans, uh, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek or to the Gentile. We saw that in Romans 1.16 the theme verse for Romans. So if that's true, if the, if the gospel is the power of God for salvation to the Jew first and then also to the Greek, then the question can legitimately be asked, what about the Jews? Because we noted last week that while the, Jewish, while the church began in Jerusalem and was largely Jewish early on, before too long, it is almost completely Gentile. By the time Paul writes Romans, the church is mainly Gentile with some Jew, Jewish believers present, but it's mostly a Gentile church. But Jesus, the subject of the gospel, 
He was the Jewish Messiah. He fulfilled Jewish prophecy. He was the fulfillment or the satisfaction of the Jewish law. So the question again can be asked, why weren't more Jewish people saved? Well, that's where Romans 9 through 11 comes in. So Romans 9 through 11, though it kind of, in a sense, interrupts Paul's thought, it still plays a vital role in Paul's exposition of the gospel. And it plays a vital role because if God can be perceived as being sort of lax concerning his promises to Israel, then you can probably surmise, well, maybe he's going to be lax regarding his promises to me. Maybe I'm not saved. Maybe he won't hold me in his hand with his unbreakable love if the promises he's made to the Jews can be seen to be uh, broken, in a sense. So we can't continue on to gospel living unless and until we can solve this riddle about the Jewish people that we see in Romans 9 through 11. So again, last week we started in Romans 9 and got up to verse 13. In that passage, we saw a few brief things here. We saw Paul's lament and his great sorrow over his people, his brethren, his kindred, his fellow Jewish compatriots, because they did not believe for the most part. And he felt a great sorrow, even to the point of wishing himself accursed if it meant that his brethren could be saved. And then we also saw the key point in the argument that Paul is going to make here regarding the Jewish people is that namely, not all Israel are Israel. And that's the point he tries to drive home as he gets into the meat of Romans 9. And he did so by taking us on a little brief journey through the history of the patriarchs, through Abraham, through Isaac, and through Esau and Jacob, to show us that not all Israel, not all who are descended from Abraham, are Abraham's sons. If you remember the story from the Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, when John the Baptist is out there baptizing, and Jewish leaders come up to him, and they say, well, we're sons of Abraham, and what does John say? He says, well, God can raise sons of Abraham from the very stones on the ground. Don't think that your ethnic identity somehow absolves you from having to repent of your sin and seek forgiveness in God. And the whole point then is with the express purpose of expressing to us that God is absolutely sovereignly free. He is absolutely and sovereignly free in his choice of election. He can choose whom he wills. He chose Isaac over Ishmael. He chose Jacob over Esau. And when we looked at those two, we saw that because they were twins and had not done anything yet good or evil while they were still in the womb, God had chosen Jacob over Esau. So it's not anything that they've done. It's not anything in their life. It's not anything that they would believe. God chose Jacob because he wanted to. Again, verse 11 from Romans 9. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but of him who calls. So the onus is on God. The, the, the choice lies in God's hands, right? Now, last week, I also went through my own excursus in talking about the doctrine of predestination the doctrine of reprobation, and we looked at Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3. Uh, I have a hand, I think I still have a few handouts out there for Westminster, uh, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3. But I want to take a few more moments before we get into the text to kind of flesh out some of those thoughts I had last week 
Um, and again, this doctrine, this idea of predestination and reprobation, it's a tough doctrine. It is a tough doctrine to understand because you are, in a sense, trying to fit together two things that in our human brains don't quite fit. Okay, they kind of, you know, you're trying to square the circle. You're trying to, you know, do something that in our brains we cannot make the threads connect. And that just kind of demonstrates our finiteness, our limitedness, and in, in fact that God is surpassingly above everything we can think or imagine. But it's a tough doctrine because it also goes against our lived experiences, right? And when I said that last week, I mentioned that God chooses the ends. So predestination unto salvation or reprobation unto damnation. He chooses the end, but he also chooses the means to those ends. So everything that you, have, you see happening in your life that leads you to a point of either believing in Christ and receiving eternal life or rejecting Christ and being set for damnation, all of those means are also chosen by God. He chooses the ends as well as the means. And the means then include things like preaching the gospel, going and witnessing to your neighbors, uh, presenting the call to repent and believe the gospel. And within that context... I gave an example from my own life and mentioned that I came to a point of crisis in my own life where I then decided to believe and trust in Jesus. And when I said that, later on that day, I got a little bit of gentle, friendly uh, pushback on that. The question then that comes up with all of this is, how does human freedom work within the sphere of God's sovereignty? Because if we believe God is sovereign, and we do, that God controls the ends as well as the means, that he, by his eternal decree, sets forth and ordains everything that comes to pass, how does human freedom work into that sphere? Because it would seem then that, at least from one perspective, you could say, well, it sounds like we're just you know, characters in a play. We just kind of live out our little script and we have no real, honest, free choice. So when we talk about freedom, human freedom or human free will, Oftentimes, people like to talk about it as if this is like the the single highest good, that this is the thing that we must protect at all costs. Human free will. We must be free to choose. Now, the question that becomes, how do you understand free will? How do you define free will? If you say something along the lines of, well, human free will is the ability of a person to freely choose as he or she desires Without coercion or hindrance, that would be mostly true. I think that is a very apt definition of human free will, that you have the ability to choose whatever you desire without any hindrance or coercion. So, in other words, if someone is holding a gun to your head and says, you know, know, recant your confession of faith, and you kind of do so out of coercion, that's not a free choice. You really don't have any freedom in that moment because it's either you know, say what you want them to say or they kill you. You know, you're kind of being hindered. Or if you are in prison, you are, your freedom is very greatly curtailed if you are in prison because you can't go and do the things you want to do because you're in a 10 by 10 cell or whatever. But if you are able to make a choice on your desires without coercion or hindrance, you have freedom. You have a free will in that sense. And why I like this definition, because it properly understands that even though we have a free will, our choices are still determined. They're determined by what it is you desire at any given moment. 
So for instance, what you ate for breakfast today, what you're wearing, where you're sitting, are all determined by your desire at the moment, okay? Fred and Lori desire to be up close, okay? Mark and Barb desire to be a little bit further toward the back. Jane is kind of a free agent. She sits wherever she feels like, so is my wife. She kind of bounces around, but the idea is you, even if you're not even conscious of the choice, you are making choices determining, you know, based on your desires at that any given moment. So why do you choose anything? Because you wanted to choose that thing. But we need to add another limiting factor to, into this question about human free will, and that is the fall and what theologians call the noetic effect of sin. So the fall corrupted mankind to the very core of his being, even his will. Our will is corrupted. The will, which is the center where we make choices, is also corrupted. So then, after the fall, does man then want to obey God? No. Man does not want to obey God after the fall, because after the fall, he is in open rebellion to God. He does not want to obey the law. He does not want to obey God. He wants to be autonomous in the true sense of the word. He wants to be a law unto himself. So you have God's law, and then you have the fallen man who says, I want to be a law unto myself. Think about the book of Judges. What was the refrain that you see at the end of the book of Judges when there's no king in the land? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So I am a law unto myself. I'm just going to do whatever I want, and I don't want to follow God. That's why the Bible describes our fallen state as being dead in sin. Dead people can't choose God. We are slaves to sin. Slaves do not have the freedom to choose God. So we are not able, nor are we willing to love God, to love our neighbor as ourselves, to love his son Jesus Christ, to follow his law, to believe the gospel, none of these things. So mankind is still free in the sense that he is making decisions based on his uh, desires at the moment without hindrance or coercion. It just so happens that his will is completely directed against God and doesn't want to follow God. He wants to go off on his own. We just freely choose to reject Jesus, to reject the gospel. But our will is dead. It is in bondage to sin. Jonathan Edwards uh, has a great work on the freedom of the will. And Martin Luther also has a work on the freedom of the will called the bondage of the will. Both are great works that describe this idea that freedom to choose does not mean that you will willingly choose God because of the noetic effects of the fall. You are corrupt in your very core of your being. You will not choose God until something happens. And that's why salvation then is a free gift of grace from God. We need new birth. We need the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to take dead sinners. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Yet God, who is rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ Jesus. By grace, you've been saved. So we need new birth. We need the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit to bring new life into us and to make us willing then to believe and receive the gospel. So then to go to wrap all the way back down to the beginning, then when I say that I decided to believe and trust 
in Jesus for my salvation, it's because the Holy Spirit made me alive. The Holy Spirit brought new birth into my life. The Holy Spirit wrought faith into my heart. And then I now see the gospel. I see Jesus Christ as desirous, as lovely, as beautiful, and I want to choose it now. Christ opened my eyes to see the truth and beauty of Christ in the gospel. So to put it another way, the Holy Spirit then irresistibly drew me to Christ, took me out of my deadness and sin, took me out of my bondage and slavery to sin, and brought me into the kingdom of his dear son. Paul says that in Colossians. He took me out of the kingdom of darkness and brought me into the kingdom of his dear son. And all of this is under the sovereign and providential control of God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We'll get more into this when we get into Romans chapter 10 because it looks at the viewpoint of human responsibility in Romans chapter 10. Romans 9 is more concerned with God's divine choice. So let's now go back to Romans 9 starting in verse 14. So... Paul ends the last section, the key verse there, uh, verse 11, where he says, For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Then he goes on, goes on to say, I chose Jacob over Esau. I, Jacob, I loved Esau. I hated the older will serve the younger, so on and so forth. So having just heard that and having considered then the history of the Jewish patriarchs, Paul then anticipates another objection in verse 14, where he says, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? And of course, Paul answers, may it never be, or God forbid. But the question, the gist of that question is, isn't it unfair of God to choose Isaac over Ishmael? Isn't it unfair of God to choose Jacob over Esau? Especially in the case of Jacob and Esau, when there's Nothing that they have no record of actions, activities, or sins, or, or good behavior. They had nothing uh, to, to consider. It seems unfair. Is it unfair? Let's take a vote. Who says it's unfair? Okay, good. It is not unfair. It is not unfair. That's why Paul answers emphatically, no, may it never be. And as evidence to show that God is not guilty of injustice, Paul quotes Exodus 33, 19 in verse 15, where he says, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now, a little bit of context here. This is after the golden calf incident in Exodus 32. So at this point, um, God had said that he would not lead the people anymore. He says, I'm not going to go before you anymore. And Moses pleads with with God, please, we need you to go before us. We need you to lead the way. So Moses pleads uh, with God and interceded for the people. And then God relents. And then Moses then boldly asks to see God's glory, presumably as a a sign of God's favor upon him. Show me your glory, he says. And then God responds with what we see here cited in um, Romans 9.15 with the words, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. 
Now, the question then is this. Is God obligated to show mercy? What do you think? Is God obligated to show mercy? You're shaking your head. Now, why is God not obligated to show mercy? It wouldn't be mercy, right? If it's obligated, it's no longer mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is giving you what you don't deserve. Justice is giving you what you deserve. Mercy is the flip side of that. It's giving you what you don't deserve. Or withholding from you, in a sense, what you do deserve. Grace is giving you what you don't deserve. So grace and mercy are related because grace, God gives you what you don't deserve. Blessing, etc., etc., etc. He withholds from you what you do deserve. Judgment, that's his mercy. So God is not obligated to show mercy. Because then, as this objection shows here, when you complain of unfairness with God for choosing one over the other, you are implying then that God must show mercy then to all. It's like, well, if you chose Jacob over Esau, why didn't you choose Esau? You should choose Esau too. If you're going to be merciful to Jacob, be merciful to Esau. Be merciful to Ishmael. Be merciful to all of them. Again, God is not obligated to show mercy. And again, the follow-up question, if God is obligated to act in any way, can it legitimately be called mercy? Right? For example, if Governor Ricketts here in Nebraska decided to pardon an inmate on death row, is he now being unjust by not pardoning all the people on death row? No, because they're on death row for a reason, right? They are there to suffer the just deserts of their crimes, assuming they've been you know, they had a fair trial and all the other things that go along with it. But if they're on death row, they are there for a reason. Now, if Governor Ricketts pardons one of them, that is not deserved. That is an act of mercy on someone who deserves death. But he is not obligated then to then pardon everyone else on death row. That's the point. And the point is this. Mercy is not injustice. Okay. Mercy is not the same as injustice. Injustice would be doing something that you don't deserve, giving you something that you don't deserve in a sense that is not right. So, you know, if I, if I owed you a debt and I did not pay you that debt, that would be injustice. Now, if you forgave me that debt, that would be mercy on your part. So now we get to another key verse in verse 16. Where Paul then says, so then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And he's talking about salvation. This idea of willing and running is that it's not dependent upon your choice. It's not dependent upon your efforts. You cannot earn or will salvation. God has to have mercy. God's sovereign choice and election does not depend, depend on man at all. It depends solely on God who shows mercy. A couple of verses here in other portions of the New Testament. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith, though not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God by grace through faith. Or Titus 3.5 God saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. 
Then Paul gives us another case study from the Old Testament where he brings up the example of Pharaoh from the Exodus in Romans 9.17, where he says, For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. Now this is a citation from Exodus 9, verse 16. So this is before the Exodus. This is where... Uh, Moses is going back and forth with Pharaoh to release the people of Israel from Egypt so they can go worship God. And God, through Moses, then tells Pharaoh, he says, this is the purpose for which I raised you up for this very thing so that I can show my power through you. The purpose being to display his power and to declare his name throughout the whole earth. Now, in a way, this is very chilling to consider if you think about it, right? The very purpose of Pharaoh's life was to be a foil in the story of Moses that God can then use to demonstrate his judgment on the Egyptian people for their sin and to be uh, seen as the enemy in God's salvation of Israel. Now, again, you might think, well, that seems unfair. I mean, did Pharaoh have any choice in the matter? He, He would say, you know, I'd like to have another part in this play. <laughs> you know, please, I, I, I don't want to be the bad guy. Can I, can I read for another, you know, another part in this, in this story? That's not how it works, though. And then in a restatement of verse 15, Paul closes in verse 18, where he says, so then God has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. God shows mercy to some, and he hardens the rest. And in the case of Pharaoh... If you're familiar with the story of Pharaoh uh, throughout Exodus, there are numerous, numerous passages where it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then there are also just as many numerous passages where it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Both are true. Pharaoh hardened his heart. God hardened his heart. Now, God is not actively creating fresh evil and unbelief in Pharaoh's heart. But what in sense, what he's doing here is he's removing his restraining hand from Pharaoh and allowing Pharaoh then to just go off the deep end with his own sin. Think again of Romans 1 when we looked at God's wrath being revealed against the unrighteousness of man because why? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And then three times in the rest of Romans 1, he says, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. God is removing his hand off of sinful man and allowing them then to go and explore the full depths of their sinful hearts. He removes his restraining hand. He does the same thing here. Pharaoh, or God hardening Pharaoh's heart is God then removing his hand off of Pharaoh, his, the hand of common grace that restrains sin and promotes a sort of practical righteousness in the world. He removes his hand from Pharaoh and allows Pharaoh then to experience the full depths of his own sin, where then Pharaoh hardens his own heart. And we see that through the story, right? He says, yeah, sure, I'll let your people go, and then changes his mind the next, you know, 10 minutes later. Or he goes back and then he makes their their tasks harder. Pharaoh was a wicked man. He wasn't a good guy saying, well, I guess I'll... You know, I really wanted to to let the people go, but you wouldn't let me, God. That wasn't what he was saying. He didn't want to let the people go. God was using that to fulfill his purposes. Both Moses and Pharaoh were sinners. Moses wasn't, 
in a sense, any more righteous than, than Pharaoh was. They're both sinners. Both were in need of God's grace and mercy. But Moses receives mercy and he was saved. Pharaoh was passed over, receives justice, and was damned. No one receives injustice. Well, now we move on to verses 19 through 21 as we consider this illustration of the potter and the clay. So another question comes up that Paul asks after looking at what we saw in verses 14 and 18, which is, why does he still find fault? That's the question that is brought up. Romans 9, 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? Now, again, on the surface, this seems like a fair question. If God hardens whom he wills, then how can I be at fault for my sins since God has hardened my heart? We saw this a little bit back in Romans 3, verse 7. Uh, In that context, Paul was concluding his case against the Jewish people, you know, where Romans 2 and 3 is, you know, Paul's indictment against the Jewish people for their sin. But in Romans 3, verse 7, uh, a person could say, but if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? In other words, if my sin makes God look good, why am I being judged as a sinner? Same thing here. You, why does God still find fault since he hardened my heart? Who can resist the will of God? So how can I be blamed for my sin if God hardens my heart? Well, Paul responds in verses 20 and 21, where he says, On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? Okay, parents, I'm going to ask you a question here. Have you ever gotten into an argument with your children and then at the end you just say, because I said so? <laughs> you ever had that happen with your children? <laughs> I know I have in my, with, with my children. You, you're going back and forth like, why can't I take the car? Why can't I do this? Why, why, why? And you're giving, because I don't want you to go out. I don't want you to take the car. And then finally you just say, because I said so. Stop arguing with me. There just comes a point in time where you need to cease questioning. And just have to obey the parent in this case. In this case, God here. Now, while Paul is arguing with an imaginary opponent, it's not a stretch to imagine he probably had this argument many times with people and they just went went just like this. And Paul is not trying to silence the questioning. But what he is doing is is, is he's trying to silence those who seek to pass judgment on God. Because that's what this question really has at its heart. It's not asking, well, why does he still find fault? It's like God is unjust to find fault in me. It's it's. It's putting God in the dock, to use C.S. Lewis's expression. Putting God in the, in the witness box and questioning God. It's man putting, it's man putting God in the, in, the, in the point of having to answer back to him. And then Paul says, look, stop asking questions. Who are you to answer back to the creator of the universe? He gave you life. He brought you into this world. As Bill Cosby would say of his children, I brought you into this world and I could take you out of this world and make another one that looks just like you when he's arguing with his children. God brought you into this world. He gave you life. Who are you to complain back to God? 
we need to remember one simple fact, and it's this. God is the creator. We are the creature. We owe everything to him. He owes nothing to us. We have no right to question God's will or his decisions. And thinking we somehow have this right demonstrates our supreme arrogance. It demonstrates our supreme arrogance. Now, notice how Paul doesn't answer the question. Paul makes no attempt to resolve the question of verse 19 by reference to human free will. He could very, if, if free will was absolute, if human free will was absolute, this would be a great point for Paul to say and respond by referencing human free will. I mean, how easy would it be to say, well, God finds fault because we have willfully disobeyed or God finds fault because we chose to sin. No, Paul finds the answer in God's sovereign freedom. The molder has the right to make of the clay whatever he wants to make. The potter has the right. The potter has the freedom. The potter can do whatever he wants with the clay. The thing molded will not answer back to God, why did you make me this way? The teapot will not say, why do I have my spout? Why is my spout short and stout? The teapot cannot say that back to the teapot maker. Okay? The teapot maker makes the teapot however he wants to make it. God is God, and we are not. And then we get this metaphor of the potter and his clay. Look, uh, keep your finger in Romans 9, and turn to Jeremiah chapter 18. In Jeremiah chapter 18, I'm going to read the first 10 verses. If you have headings in your Bible, you might even see the potter and the clay above chapter 18 in Jeremiah. So the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord, sorry, the word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, arise, go down to the potter's house and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house and there he was making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel and it pleased the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I plan to bring on it. Or at another moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to build it up or to plant it. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will think better of the good with which I promise to bless it. So there he uses the image of the potter and the clay, and that's where Paul is pulling this image from. But he's now using it for his own argument to say that God has the the desire to do whatever he wants with the clay. Now the analogy, like all analogies, should not be pressed too far. But the point is this. God has the sovereign free right as the potter to do as he wishes with us who are the clay. And here in verse 21, the potter takes clay from the same lump, one big giant lump of clay. He takes some of it and he makes a vessel for honorable use. He takes another piece of the clay and makes a vessel for common use. 
Now, this idea of the same lump is very important. Both vessels, honorable and common, or honorable and dishonorable, depending on what your translation says, come from the same lump. Now, again, last week I mentioned that when God elects some for mercy and passes over others for judgment or for justice, he is doing so by considering humanity as already fallen. He is looking at the lump of clay. It has fallen humanity. He is taking some and making it honorable. He's taking others and making it common. So this same lump is fallen humanity, and from this lump, God freely choosing to make venerable vessels for honorable use, which is choosing some for salvation, and vessels for common use, which is leaving the rest to face the judgment for their sins. But the point of the matter here is that God is free to do this. He doesn't answer to us. He is free to do this. He doesn't have to answer to you. He doesn't have to answer to me. He doesn't have to answer to anybody. He is the potter. He has the freedom. Likewise, we have no right then to demand that God answer to us about his sovereign purposes for our lives. Now, verses 22 to 24, we see, again, these vessels of wrath and mercy or the vessels of honorable and common use here. Uh, So he goes on to illustrate this notion of the potter with his clay in verses 22 through 24. So what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory. But even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. Now, this question Paul poses in the form of a rhetorical question, what if? And the idea is that supposing God wants to display to all creation, God wants to display his wrath, his power, and his patience. So then, in order to do so, God then endures with much patience these vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction. Now, the preparing for the destruction is Basically, the fact that mankind has already fallen, mankind is already sentenced to destruction, and God is going to just let that happen by his sovereign choice. He endures with much patience. But the purpose of it is to show his wrath, to show his power, to show his justice, to show his judgment. But even in judgment, God shows himself merciful. He endures it with much patience. Think again when we looked at Romans 2, verse 4, in which God's patience in kindness over this continual sinning of his people, Israel, is meant to lead them to repentance. He endured the wicked. He doesn't punish their sin immediately, but he patiently endures it. Which means that no one on Judgment Day is going to be able to accuse God of not giving them a chance. Now, back to that rhetorical question. What if God, wanting to show his power and patience, endured these vessels of wrath? Going back to what we said earlier, God is not obligated to show mercy to everyone. He's not obligated to show mercy to anyone, right? The grand purpose of all things here is for God to display his glory. We're going to see this at the end of Romans 11. We're in Romans 11, verse 36. Paul concludes with a... a, benediction, a paean of praise to God, where he says, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. 
God is worthy of our praise and worship. He is, he is glorious, and the, and the display of his glory is the purpose for all things. Many verses proclaim that the Lord's glory fills the earth, and God's glory is displayed as he patiently endures the wicked for the day of destruction. So if the wicked then show God's glory by allowing him to put on display his wrath, power, and patience, what about those who are elect unto salvation? How does that display God's glory? Well, God's glory is displayed in his mercy, in his grace, in his love, as he then takes these vessels of mercy, which God prepares beforehand for glory. And these vessels of mercy then make known the riches of God's glory. God is rich in glory. Glory, in a sense, is what kind of emanates from God, right? If a fire uh, radiates heat and light, God radiates or emanates glory. It is like the summation of all of his attributes come forth in his glory, which fills the earth. And these vessels of mercy make known God's glory precisely because they are living witnesses to God's grace, to God's mercy, and to God's love. Now, we all, the entire human race, the entire lump of clay, deserve wrath and justice because of the fall. We deserve wrath and justice. God endures patiently some of that lump and demonstrates his wrath and power and patience by giving them what their sins deserve. Others, God graciously elects into salvation so that they bear witness to God's love and mercy. And all of it then is displays God's glory in all of its multifaceted brilliance. And then in verse 24, we see that these vessels of mercy come from both Jews and Gentile, all whom God foreknew and called according to his sovereign purposes. Now briefly as we finish this section here in verses 25 through 29, we see this is God's plan all along. God's word is not failed. That's the whole point of what he's going about here because the initial argument starts, has God's word failed? Because God made all these promises to the Jews. Has God's word failed? Because no, many Jews are, are in unbelief. And Paul's point is to show, it's like, no, this has been God's plan from the very beginning. Not all Israel are Israel. And Paul will cite several Old Testament passages, passages here from Hosea and from Isaiah to prove two main points. First, not all Israel are Israel because God will call those who are not my people, my people. And here in verses 25 and 26 is a citation from Hosea. I will call those who are not my people, my people, and her, her who was not my beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. So many people far and wide will be called by God to become his people. And this is clearly the fact as the history of the church shows this multitude from every tribe, every tongue, every nation coming to Mount Zion to worship God. But second, not all Israel are Israel because only a remnant will be chosen. Here is a citation in verses 27 and 29 uh, from Isaiah, where Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the numbers of the sons of Israel be like the sands of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. So many sons and daughters of Abraham, but only the remnant will be saved. 
For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of hosts had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. And again, the history of Israel bears this out. As many ethnic Jews faced God's wrath and judgment. Just think of the Exodus. How many Jews died on the way from from Sinai to the promised land? Many Jews died because many Jews rebelled. Right? Think of the apostasy during the time of the judges. Think of the apostasy during the time of the prophets before they were exiled in Babylon. Many Jews were unbelieving. Yet despite even the most wicked periods of Israel's history, God has preserved a chosen remnant. And it all goes back to what we said last week. Not all Israel are Israel. Not all who are ethnic Jews are true spiritual Jews. And God's promises have not failed because God never promised the salvation of every ethnic Jew. God promised that despite Israel's times of national apostasy, there has always been a faithful remnant preserved by God. And God's promises have not failed because Israel was always considered to be much bigger than just ethnic Israel. The original promise was to Abraham and was to be a blessing to all nations. So this is looking at Israel's unbelief from the vantage point of God's sovereign choice and divine election. Next week, Lord willing, on the 14th, we'll begin to look at Israel's unbelief from the vantage point of human responsibility. As we consider, we'll look at Romans 9.30 to Romans 10.4, where we see that Israel did not pursue the promises by faith.